0: go ahead and get started here um, want to open with a word of prayer and then uh, we'll get started with our our new uh new sunday school class start up for our kind of winter spring uh, semester I guess you would call it so let's open with a word of prayer heavenly father we thank you for the time to be here together we thank you for the opportunity to study your word uh, lord as we embark on this new class I just pray that you would just guide us uh, each and everything that we do, Lord, we just pray that you would be glorified. I think of the service to follow, Father, and I just pray for it and and again that you would be glorified in everything that we do and if there's any who uh, do not know Christ as their Savior, I pray that today would be the day that that the Holy Spirit would touch their hearts and they would come to know Jesus, and we just ask this in Jesus name. Amen. All right, this is as I said, this is the start of our uh, new Sunday school class for, uh, for the new year, for the start of the new year here. Uh, this class will probably be a 15 to 16 week class. That's kind of the plan right now. And we're going to do a class on basic Bible doctrine. Um, I want to stress that this is going to be basic Bible doctrine. We're not going to do like full out systematic theology. I did that back a few years ago. But that took the better part of a year to teach that class, and so uh, this is basically just going to be, uh, th- this is kind of a reminder, uh, you know, as far as like why do the class now and, and why teach this class, well, I like to teach a class on, on doctrine every so many years, just, I know a lot of people have heard it before, a lot of people are familiar with it, but it's always good to have a reminder I like to have the reminder myself. It's good for me to study it. That way it kind of always keeps it fresh in my mind. Um, It's also good because you always have people at very different stages of spiritual growth. You have people at any particular time that may not have studied this. You have people that are relatively new believers, uh, you know, and and this is good for, for grounding them in what we believe. You also have people that are from a variety of different faith backgrounds that, that come together. And, and so it's good for them to understand this is, you know, kind of what we believe as a church. It's also uh, an, an appropriate time because we've just brought out the new Constitution uh, along with the, the, its section on doctrine, on what we believe. So it's a good time, uh, you know, since we brought that out, you know, we can kind of go through this together and at times we will use uh... you know that that you know document in order to kinda uh... just as you know kinda go along with what we, we were talking about in the class uh... so it just seemed like an appropriate time to teach it uh, another thing about it is the study of theology is actually important the study of bible doctrine it's it's an important thing uh, Unfortunately, we live in a, in a time, I think, in, in Christianity where it's often neglected. Uh, but the Bible is very clear that it's something we are supposed to teach. Uh, as I said, I think you know, many churches never really touch on it, uh, but it is something that we are supposed to teach. I, I want to read uh, you know, a couple passages actually from 1 and 2 Timothy to kind of show you what I'm talking about. Now. Paul wrote these two letters to Timothy, who was his son in the faith. Uh, you know, he saw Timothy, he wasn't literally his son, but he saw him as a son. He saw him uh, as essentially as a protege. He was Timothy's mentor. Uh, and, and, and he was investing himself, investing his life into Timothy, uh, and helping him to become a godly man and helping him to become a, a great pastor. And I just want to read just some sections of these letters uh, just to show you the importance of of doctrine. And I'm going to read from uh, the the New Living Translation here, uh, and it's going to use the word teaching. That's the exact same word. It's just, you know, there's two different ways that people translate it, doctrine or teaching. By the way, that's what a doctrine is. When you hear the word doctrine, that is the definition of doctrine. A doctrine is a teaching. It doesn't have to be necessarily a religious teaching, a Christian teaching. Uh, you know, you hear words like political doctrine or economic doctrine, things like that. What what that simply means is that is a teaching in that field, that branch of study, okay? So a doctrine as it applies cr- to Christian doctrine is a Christian teaching on a particular topic. And we'll talk more about that here, here shortly, but... Uh, so, you know, the word teaching and doctrine you know, are often used interchangeably uh, in the New Testament. And, and so you're going to see the word teaching here uh, used often. I want to start at 1 Timothy chapter 4. I want to read verses 1 through 8 and then look at verses 13 through 16. It's, now, the Holy Spirit tells us clearly in the last time some will turn away from the true faith. They will follow deceptive spirits and teachings and co- uh, uh, that come from, uh, from demons. That word teaching there, many of you have that translated as doctrines, okay, depending on the translation that, that you have. These people are hypocrites and liars and their consciences are dead. They will say it, uh, say it is wrong to, to be married. and Here he just gives a couple examples of the bad doctrine that was going on at the time. Uh, Wrong to be married and wrong to eat certain foods, but God created those foods to be eaten with thanks by faithful people who know the truth. Since everything God created is good, we should not reject any of it but receive it with thanks, for we know it was made acceptable by the word of God and prayer. If you explain these things to the brothers and sisters. Now, notice what he's saying here. He's talking to Timothy and he's saying to Timothy, if you explain these things, these teachings, this doctrine. If you explain these things to the brothers and sisters, Timothy, you will be a worthy servant of Christ Jesus, one who is nourished by the message of faith and the good teaching, again, or good doctrine you have followed. Do not waste time arguing over godless ideas and old wives' tales. Instead, train yourself to be godly. Physical training is good, but training for godliness is much better, promising benefits in this life and in the life to come. And if you skip down to verses 13 through 16, he kind of picks up again on that that theme of the passage. Until I get there, focus on the reading of scriptures to the church, encouraging them, and teaching them. And again, that's that same, same idea. Do not neglect the spiritual gift you received through prophecy spoken over you when the elders of the church laid their hands on you. Give your complete attention to these matters. Throw yourself into your task so that everyone will see your progress. Keep a close watch on how you live and on your teaching, on your doctrine. Stay true to what is right for the sake of your own salvation and the salvation of those who hear you. If you jump over to 2 Timothy, and actually there's more even in 1 Timothy, but I'm just picking some select, select passages. Jump over to 2 Timothy, a second letter to Timothy. And let's begin. I'm actually just going to skip the one passage I was going to look at. We'll edit a little bit here. We don't have the time to do that today. Look at uh, at Second Timothy chapter three verse ten. We'll start there, and I'm just going to read down through chapter four verse five. But you, Timothy, certainly know what I teach and how I live and what my purpose in life is. You know my faith, my patience, my love, and my endurance. You know how much persecution and suffering I have endured. You know all about how I was persecuted in Antioch, Iconium, and Lystra. Uh, But the Lord rescued me from uh, from all of it. Yes, and everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. But evil people and imposters will flourish. They will deceive others and will themselves be deceived. But you must remain faithful to the things which you have been taught. You know they are true. For you know you can trust those who taught you. You have been taught the Holy Scriptures from childhood, and they have given you wisdom to receive the salvation that comes by trusting in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is inspired by God and is useful to teach us what is true and to make us realize what is wrong in our lives. It corrects us when we are wrong and teaches us to do what is right. God uses it to prepare and equip his people to do every good thing. Now, I want you to just stop for a second and think about what he's saying here. God uses Scripture, God uses, as he was saying here, the things that he had been taught, and he uses Scripture in order to prepare us. It corrects us when we're wrong, it teaches us what to do, what what is right, and and God uses it to prepare and equip his people to do every good work. I solemnly urge you, uh, in the presence of God and Christ Jesus, who will someday judge the living and the dead when he comes to set up his kingdom. Preach the word of God. Be prepared whether the time is favorable or not. Patiently correct, rebuke, and encourage your people with good teaching. And again, that's the phrase doctrine. That's probably what most of you have in your Bibles. Encourage them with good doctrine. For a time is coming when people will no longer listen to sound and wholesome teaching or doctrine. They will follow their own desires and will look for teachers who will tell them whatever their itching ears want to hear. They will reject the truth and chase after myths. But you should keep a clear mind in every situation. Don't be afraid of suffering for the Lord. Work at telling others the good news and fully carry out the ministry God has given you. So we see in both letters that Paul wrote to his son in the faith, Timothy, Paul stresses the need for teaching doctrine for teaching in a general sense, you know, for teaching God's Word, but specifically he mentions doctrine in those two passages over and over again. So there is a stress in the Bible, and it's not just in in Timothy, in the letters to Timothy, there is a stress on the importance of the teaching of doctrine. That that is what teachers, that is what elders, that that is what pastors are to do. It's part of what they are to do. And like I said, unfortunately, at times that seems to be uh, neglected in in modern Christianity. So the answer to why we're going to do a class on Bible doctrine is, well, one, because we're supposed to. We're supposed to, on occasion, teach doctrine, to teach what we believe. It, It keeps us grounded if we are seasoned in the faith, and if we are new in the faith, it gives us the grounding we need to be the people that, that God wants us to be. So, essentially, that's why we're going to teach a class on Bible doctrine. Now, as I mentioned, it's going to be a basic class, a class on basic doctrine. We are not going to touch on every element of Christian doctrine. Like I said, the last time I did this, I taught systematic theology. It basically took a year to teach it. You could spend, and even then, I felt like I was not really covering everything. You could spend literally weeks on every doctrine. That's not what this class is going to be. The, how many of you have ever read Charles Ryrie's Basic Doctrine, Basic Theology? Yeah, it actually was used quite often as a textbook a lot of times, kind of an introductory textbook, you know, to the study of doctrine. Well, you know, that's kind of the what we're going to try to do here. It, it's it's a basic, it's not like a, a, a super in-depth. If, if, if any of you ever have, um, you know, like, you know, books on Bible doctrine, you'll know that Ryrie's basic theology is is a basic theology. You know, it doesn't cover everything. Uh, You know, we're going to use that some in the course of this study. We're going to use a couple others, Millard Erickson's Christian theology. Uh, Probably the one we'll use most is Norman Geisler's systematic theology. To give you an idea, this is one volume. This is the first volume of Geisler's systematic theology. There's four. You know, so it, it gives you the idea of how labor-intensive the study of doctrine can be. So that's not going to be this class. You know, there are questions you may have on, on kind of, uh, you know, the fringe things of, of theology we are not going to touch on. So I'm, I'm just going to tell you that right off the bat. We might not touch on everything you're interested in. This is basic theology. We're going to try to cover the basic things that that we need to know as believers, the basic parts of each doctrine. So that's going to be the nature of the class. Now, I want to start with a couple definitions, because what this class is going to be today is an introductory class. Every systematic theology I own begins with an introduction, every single one. A lot of times when we get those, people skip right over them. They, You know, man, I, I'm not going to get involved in that mess. It's, it's, you know, you, they get slogged down by all the... It's basically philosophy. What are the preconditions that exist in order that we can do theology? What has to exist for us to, to talk about God? Well, that's what we're going to talk about today. Because you really can't do it unless you understand some of those things. You need to understand why this is even possible for us, and what are some of the rules in trying to do this. So I apologize in advance, today is going to be heavy on things like philosophy. Now we're not going to, you know, this is not a class on philosophy, we're not going to break down all of these things and go real deep into them, but I do want you to have the basis for the study of, of, of theology. So let's begin with some definitions. What is theology? Well, theology comes from from the words theos, the Greek word theos, which is the word for God, and and logos, which essentially means uh, to reason or to have discourse, okay? Now, oftentimes you will hear people say it means the study of, whenever you see ology. Well, they get that from the fact that the word means to reason or discourse, because if you're going to reason about something, you have to think deeply about it. You know, if you're going to have a reasoned discourse, you have to have two people at least that have thought deeply about it, which is study. So it is correct to say that it is the study of God. Essentially, theology is the study of God. It, it, that applies not just to God, the, the, the triune God, but it also applies to the things of God. God's word, God's people, the acts of God. Basically, you know, it's a study of the things, you know, of who God is and what God has done, what God has said. Okay, so it it literally means the study of God, or better yet, it means a reasoned discourse, a reasoned discussion on God. You know, you can do theology by yourself, but it also implies you, you do theology with others. You have a discourse, you know, you, you, you talk about this with other people, which is essentially what we're going to do in this class. So theology is the study of God. Um, I've, just, I've already talked about doctrine. Essentially, doctrine is a teaching. Uh, doctrine is the teaching uh, about these different elements about God. Uh, you know, there are, are a whole series of basic divisions in theology. And let me just kind of read... Uh, something to you about this from Geisler's systematic theology. This is from his introduction uh, to systematic theology. And he lists here the basic divisions of systematic theology. And I'll, exp- I'll define systematic theology here in a, in a minute. Systematic theology is general- generally divided into the following categories. One, and, and you know, he's going to give you the big Latin name here, and, and I'll explain what that, that is here in a second. A uh, prolegemina, which basically, pro is before, it basically means, you know, before you speak. Uh, you know, the, these are the things you have to know before you, can, before you speak about this. Uh, and that's the introduction. Bibliology, which means the study of the Bible. Theology proper, which is the study of God. Anthropology, which is the study of human beings. Hermartiology, which is the study of sin. Soteriology, which is the study of salvation. Ecclesiology is the study of the church, and eschatology is the study of last things. In addition, the study of the Holy Spirit, a subdivision of theology proper, is titled pneumatology, and discourses about Christ are called Christology. And as he points out there, many, many systematic theologies put them all under the study of, of God, theology proper, as subdivisions. Not every... Systematic theology does that. Some give them separate, you know, kind of billing, if you will. So it, That has really nothing to do with, with other than how they want to organize their work, okay, how they want to organize their particular theology. Um, theological discussions about demons are, are, are designated. Demonology about Satan are titled Satanology, and the study of angels is labeled Angelology, okay? And again, not everybody has those as their own classifications. Uh, some will have a classification they call creation, and when they're talking about creation, they are not generally talking about God creating the world. They're talking about the created beings, and they will put, you know, under that they will have human beings, angels, demons, Satan, okay? So again, it's all how the, the, each, each writer of theology wants to organize their work. Okay, Uh, so everyone is a little bit different, but they all basically deal with the same topics, just they organize them slightly different. So those are the different things that that we're going to talk about in the course of this class. Now, each one of them is a doctrine. There is a teaching on Christ called Christology. There's a teaching on the church called ecclesiology. Okay, you guys get the idea? Systematic theology or theology is the study of the whole thing together under kind of one umbrella, but then as you separate each one, that is a doctrine. You're talking about the teaching on that particular thing. That's the easiest way, at least for me, to you know, understand what is theology and what is doctrine and how they differ. Doctrine is the parts of theology, all right? Hopefully that, that helps you to to understand what we're we're talking about here. Now let's define a few more words. One, biblical theology. And and, and you're gonna hear as as people talk about theology and as we go probably through the, you'll probably hear this as we go through the course of this class, you're gonna hear me mention biblical theology, historical theology, systematic theology, evangelical theology, okay? So what do those team terms mean? Let, you know, let, let's begin by understanding what they mean. Well, biblical theology is a, essentially the, the Bible's basis for theology. Theology comes from the Bible. In order to be good theology, it has to come from the Bible. It has to come what God's Word says. You know, and so the, 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 actual, the parts of the Bible that we look at and we say, okay, that seems to teach this particular truth. When we are doing that, we are doing what is called biblical theology. We're reading the Bible and saying, hey, that seems to be teaching this about God, or it seems to be teaching this about human beings, seems to be teaching this about the end times, whatever it may be. You're doing biblical theology, okay? Historical theology is the, the study of what the great theologians in the history of the church have said on these topics. Okay, you know, what, you know, and you hear this, man, you hear this a lot in the Protestant world that we live in of people like John Calvin and Martin Luther and, and Jacob Arminius, depending on what side of that Calvin-Arminian debate you come on. So you hear people quoting those, those people and saying, well, this is what they taught. You know, in the Catholic world, you're going to hear people like Thomas Aquinas and Anselm of Canterbury. And St. Augustine, and actually you'll even hear Aquinas and Augustine quite a lot in, you know, in Protestant theology. Actually almost all, you know, almost every theologian or apologist that I've encountered that's spoken on this topic seems to absolutely love Thomas Aquinas. They generally consider Aquinas as the greatest theologian in the history of the church, at least until you get to the Apostle Paul. Uh, you know, and so there's a lot of blending that takes place, but you can also go back even much further into the Patristics, the the early church fathers, and and what many of them said about about theology. Now, why is any of that important? Well, for a couple reasons. Let me just enumerate a couple things here. One, there are no lone rangers when it comes to Christianity. That's important for us to understand. You, you know. It, I read one time uh, 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 one of the, the great uh, Christian historians of modern times. Uh, you know, he, he, he wrote a, a uh, I was reading one of his, his books on, on Christian history. And, and he, you know, mentioned at the beginning of the book that one of his uh, uh, students had placed a, a cartoon, a comic, on his door one day. And it was of a little girl who was asked to write uh, an essay on Christian history. And the essay went like this. My pastor was born on such and such a year. That's where Christian history began and ended with her. It began right where she was at. Well, you know, isn't that the way a lot of us are? All we really know of, of the Christian experience is that it's right now with us. And we think that somehow it began with us. And the teachings of the Christian church go no deeper than with us. That's not biblical. And unfortunately, that's where it will stay for a lot of people. You know, we'll latch on to one particular person or a couple particular people, and what they say will tell us everything we think we need to know about theology, and we won't go any deeper than that. I was talking to a friend of mine one time, uh, you know, who's, you know, very old now, does not go to this this church, but someone who, who went here many years ago, and I, I was at his house and he uh, showed me his collection, uh, you know, he, he, he did a lot of teaching, uh, and he, he took me down into the basement and he showed me kind of what he uses, the basics for his teaching. And everything was like an entire collection of this one guy, just one guy. And I realized right there why he and I didn't always see eye to to eye on, you know, on teaching. Um, And I was looking at that, and, and, you know, you're looking for something to say. And I was like, well, you know, boy, you have quite a collection. He said, yeah, I started that. I picked up a bunch of those at a yard sale. And I really liked them, and so I just collected, like, all of them. And, And so his understanding of theology basically was because he got a good deal at a yard sale, that's what began his, you know, and it never got beyond that. Now, it's okay if it begins that way, but if you, you know, as long as you go somewhere else. But he thought everything that that guy said was absolutely true. And I mean, he would argue with anybody over some, some of those things. But it was, you know, it was all, if he'd have found Aquinas at a yard sale, he'd probably been, you know, a Thomist. So, you know, just point that out to point out how silly we can be sometimes. You know, look at other sources. Read them. Try to discover what is out there. Then make up your mind who makes the best arguments. None of us are Lone Rangers. You know, you need more than just what we give you here. You guys have heard me say this many times, and you'll hear me say it until I die. Do not ever take whatever I say to you and think, boy, that is the truth and I'm going to stand by that no matter what. Don't ever do that. Look, I I, I promise you I will never try to lead you astray. But I also will promise you I will be wrong about things. I, I, I mean, I'm a human being and I know that. I have caught myself times and had to come back to a class and say, hey, a couple weeks ago I said this and now I've read some other things and I think I was wrong. I apologize. That's just going to happen. We're we're human beings. And and you have to come at theology, you have to come at the whole Christian life, especially theology, with a pretty good dose of humility. If you don't, you're going to run into trouble sooner or later. So none of us are lone rangers. Again, let me read something that, uh, and this is very familiar, but I just want to read it anyways. Um, you know, this is, is uh, 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 20 and, and 21. Above all, you must realize that no prophecy in Scripture ever came from the prophet's own understanding. And, and, and some of you uh, may have or, or is a matter of one's own interpretation, Scholars kind of disagree over exactly how that should be translated, but either way you look at it, whether it's the person that's writing it or whether it's the person that's reading it, you don't just get to pick what you want based on yourself. That's what it's saying. You know, no, no, uh, no, uh, those prophets were moved by the Holy Spirit and they spoke from God. You, you know, it, it We don't just get to make up what we want. Unfortunately, a lot of times, we navigate to the things that we like. We'll find somebody that will tell us what we want to hear, or what will back up our already conceived notion, and then we'll just latch on to that, and and, and every time we discuss it with someone, well, so-and-so said this. Look, it's great to have heroes in the faith, I do. The late Norman Geisler was one of them. I've learned so much from his writings. However, I don't agree with him on everything. There's things I've re- I read that I'm like, nah, I just don't think that's right. I-, I don't think that's, you know, really the the sound way to look at that. I've never met anyone who I agreed with on everything. And that's okay. It's never caused us not to be friends or you know, to, to have any issue. Really good, godly people can disagree on theological things. You have to understand that going in. You will probably not agree with everything I say over the course of this class. And you know, that's perfectly fine. As long as it's not like the major things of who Jesus is and, who, you know, who God is and how we get salvation. You know, I mean, there are the basic things that we must be in agreement on Or we cannot, like, you know, do church together. But beyond those basic things, we can disagree. You know, it's okay. It's okay. You know, we have what we teach here as a church, but we try to even say in that, like, look, on on the basics, we want to all be together. But on the peripheral things, we can have disagreement. Now, this is what we teach, this is what we believe. If you're not quite there with us, that's okay. You can still fellowship with us. We can be in the same church together. We can do ministry together. We are brothers and sisters in Christ. Okay? It's okay. But none of us gets to just make it up on our own. The reason that is so important is because interpretation is hard. Biblical interpretation is a difficult thing. You realize that almost all the letters of the New Testament are, at some point or another, Paul is basically correcting some sort of false teaching, some kind of uh, misshapen idea within that particular church, almost every letter he wrote. Now, they were the ones who understood the language, understood the culture, and had the apostles right there with them. The ones who Christ had had taught these things. The Bible tells us that the church is built on the foundation of the prophets and the apostles. They gave us God's word and they laid down how to understand it. And yet Paul had to correct churches every letter he wrote. Now if they made mistakes, don't you think we're going to? 2,000 years removed from the context, from the culture and the language... Absolutely, we're going to make mistakes. So it is okay to disagree at times because interpretation is hard. You know, it, it's difficult. And sometimes we get to a point, I mean, man, you guys have heard me say it how many times? Uh, man, we, we, we just did, we spent last year, well, not the year, two years ago and last year, we spent two years doing... The study of revelation and, and, and of end times prophecy. How many times do you guys hear me saying that? Look, here are the different positions that people take. I don't know. I, you know, I felt like I said it every week. I got tired of saying it. But it was true. It's like, look, here's three or four ways that people through history have interpreted this. And I've read all of those. And I understand what they're saying, but i got to tell you, I just don't know. You know, it's okay to say that. It's okay. You know, we don't have to understand it all. We can't possibly understand it all. Do your best, though. Do your best. Read those things. Try to understand it. And then just be honest enough, if you get to the end of it and you say, well, hey, I I don't know which one's the best. I kind of think this one might have the best argument, so that's the one I'm going to latch on to. But I'm not going to get in a big fight over their other ones because, I, I, you know, it's, it's pretty close. That's okay. And kind of the last thing I want to mention as far as why it's important to study historical theology is because truth is timeless. You know, it, it, it's important to understand what the early believers in the church Believed, the ones that were closest to the events, it's important to understand what they believe. It doesn't mean they're always right. Theology has progressed as time has gone. There's no doubt. People, every theologian I've ever known has talked about that. You know, at certain times in church history, you, you tend to focus on what is big in Christianity at that time. So early on, there were great debates, there was a lot of heresy over who God was, who Christ was, who the Holy Spirit was. What exactly is the Bible? You know, there, there were big debates over those things. How, how do you d- define the Trinity? How do you even verbalize the Trinity? Those were huge debates in the early church. And so a lot of the theological writing of the early church fathers tends to centralize on those things. Then as time went on, what the church is became Much more of a debate. And the debate centralized on that. The last one that kind of came into focus was end times. That doesn't mean the early, you know, Christians didn't write about end times. They did. But they didn't tend to write a whole lot on it. And they didn't get real detailed. But then as time went on, people started focusing more on, wow, how long is it going to be until Christ comes? I'll bet he's going to be coming sometime soon. You know, look at the things in the world. I mean, the same things we say all the time. And all of a sudden, you have a concentration on end-time studies. So that's always been the history of the church. That's that's kind of the way it has worked. But it's good to know what the early Christians believed. Even if we don't necessarily always agree, it's good to have that perspective. Because truth is timeless. You know, there are some things that maybe we will never know the answer in this life. But there are things that we do know the answer that, that are the basics of the Christian faith. If you get that wrong, you can't rightfully call yourself a Christian. It's really just that simple. That is timeless. Unfortunately, again, in, in our modern world, many churches have backed away from, from those basics of the Christian faith that are timeless, and they've tried to say, well, they, you know, those things are all subjective. Well, they're not. Excuse my phone. I don't, have no idea why that does that. You guys know me and technology. We don't, they don't always see eye to eye. Um, you know, we've seen a, a backing away from the basics of the faith in a lot of, you know, denominations uh, who've tried to argue, well, these things are all subjective, it's what you want them to be, uh, and, and that's just not true. You know, things are, truth is timeless. You've got to understand, like, I might like the color blue, you might like the color red, I might say, hey, blue's the best color. That is subjective. That's subjective to my likes and dislikes. That's what being subjective means. When something is objective, that means it's based on facts. Okay? You can't say a circle looks like a triangle because we all understand circleness and triangularness, whatever you want to call it. We all get the concept It's universal. It's a truth. So you can't, you know, you can't mess with the things that are objectively true. Okay? There's a difference between what is objective and what is subjective. Now, what is systematic theology? Again, let me read a Dr. the late Dr. Geisler was a better at verbalizing these things than what I am. Systematic theology is an attempt to construct a comprehensive and consistent whole out of all the revelation from God, whether special or what's called biblical or general, uh, which is also called natural revelation. It's the attempt to take and put it into a system, to take all the truth that we have about God, about the things of God, take all the data and organize it so that it all fits. You'll notice that, you know, it, it, it... it has an order. One doctrine kind of leads into another doctrine, leads into another doctrine. It's the idea of putting it into a system. Now, some people don't like systematic theology because they think it's too, you know, confined, too much of a system. They just, you know, they want to do biblical theology. Let's just talk about what the Bible has to say about these things. I think, honestly, that misses the boat a little bit because you can't do systematic theology without biblical theology. They, they, they go together. It's just, well, you know, whether you try to organize them or not. And that's essentially what systematic theology is. It's the attempt to as he said to make a comprehensive whole out of all the data. Let's bring it all together into kind of one, you know, system so we can understand it and talk about it better. All right? So it's largely going to be systematic theology that we are going to talk about here. But we will talk about the biblical basis for it. Biblical theology and we will talk about in many times the historical basis for it, the you know, historical theology. That's one of the great things I love about Geisler's theology. That's why it's my favorite. Because he'll deal with the issue and then he'll go back through, and this is what you know people said from the early church, and this is what people said from Catholic theology, and this is what people said from Reformation theology, this is what people have said in modern theology. This is kind of, he goes through like an entire spend page after page after page fleshing out how others have seen this same thing all throughout the history of the church. So he, he, you know, he deals with both, which I think is, is important. Now, a few more words uh, you know, just to uh, you know, define here to kind of get us where we need to be. Evangelical and evangelical theology. What do we mean when we say that? This evangelical theology is defined here as a discourse about God that maintain, maintains that there are certain essential Christian beliefs. To be an evangelical is to hold to those certain essential Christian beliefs. Now, different evangelicals kind of differ over what exactly those beliefs are. Uh, they all kind of agree on a certain core. Some will add a few here and there, but they basically agree on a certain core. Let let me continue on. He says, These include but are not necessarily limited to the infallibility and inerrancy of the Bible alone, the triunity of God, the virgin birth of Christ, the deity of Christ, the all-sufficiency of Christ's atoning sacrifice for sin, the physical and miraculous resurrection of Christ, the necessity of salvation by faith alone through God's grace alone based on the work of Christ alone, the physical bodily resurrect, or, or return of Christ to the earth, the eternal conscious bliss of the saved and the eternal conscious punishment of the unsaved. So basically he's saying those, those are kind of like central issues that are key to, to Christianity, okay? He's not necessarily arguing you have to understand all those things, have perfect understanding of it to be saved, I, you know, Kids get saved all the time. They, they don't understand the virgin birth. It's okay. They, you, know, you can get saved without that. But what he's saying is you can't be evangelical without that. You know, you, you, you can't hold to the core of the Christian faith without that. And that's what being an evangelical is. It's, it's to, to believe that there's a certain core to the Christian faith that you must hold to in order to, to, to hold fast to, 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 the, the, to the Christian faith. Okay? So if we speak about evangelical theology, we are talking about those things that are within that, that kind of core. Orthodoxy. This one gets confusing for people. Orthodoxy essentially means conforming to what is generally accepted as true or right. That is the textbook, you know, dictionary definition of orthodoxy. What's it mean to be orthodox? Um where it gets tricky is there's a church that is called the Orthodox Church. Let's think of it as a denomination. There is a denomination called Eastern Orthodoxy. It could be Greek Orthodoxy, Russian Orthodoxy, you know, the different ones from different countries, but if you lump them all together, it's kind of the Eastern side of Christianity. Okay? And it's ancient. I mean ancient. At one point, you know, the early church, the first church, Jerusalem, would have been considered a part of the, the, the orthodox world, okay? So Eastern Christianity, uh, you know, often calls itself orthodoxy. That's where it gets kind of, you know, confusing. So most of the time, if I use the term, I will be talking about simply what conforms to what is generally accepted as true. What is orthodox, not what is the orthodox faith or denomination? If I use that term, if I am talking about the Eastern Orthodox, I will say, I am talking about the Eastern Orthodox. I'm talking about, you know, what they believe. Okay, I will try to differentiate for you. But if I use the term orthodoxy or orthodox, I simply mean this is what conforms to what is generally accepted. This is what Christians have kind of believed has been true, the core of our faith, going the whole way back to the beginning. So that's, you know, and I probably will use that term from time to time. All right. Um, let's, let's move on. Let's talk briefly now about some of the preconditions uh, for doing theology. Uh, I think I've kind of probably, you know, defined about everything we need to define today, if there are things... Actually, let me throw in two more things real quickly, because we may touch on this. Um, Many times throughout church history, there have been people who have defended the Christian faith against its detractors, okay? And that's an important thing. In fact, most of those people are theologians, uh, they are writing theology, doing theology, but they're also defending the church against the, the people who try to oppose it or, or, or to cause schism within it. Uh, in fact, Dr. Geisler, that's one of the things he was particularly known for. Um, we tend to, to, to call that field apologetics, and, and many people considered him, I've, I've heard him use the phrase, the Michael Jordan of, of Christian apologetics. I don't know if he would accept that but that is what many people uh, considered him. He and, and William Lane Craig and a few others, they have literally debated atheists and agnostics and, and skeptics all over the world, literally gone all over the world to co- into the heart of college campuses and debated the, the greatest atheists in the world. You know, and that's what we mean by apologists. Apology, we tend to use apology in modern language to mean, to to say I'm sorry for something. That is not what it means. It means to defend. You are defending something. Uh, A defense attorney is an apologist. He is defending you. He is making an apology for you when he's defending you. That's, That's how the term was, is supposed to be used, how it was used for years and it's kind of become something else in modern language. So when I say an apologist, I'm not talking about somebody's out there saying, oh, I'm sorry, I'm a Christian. That's not what they're doing at all. In fact, you couldn't get any further from that. What they are saying is, I am happy I'm a Christian. It is the right thing to be a Christian, and let me tell you why it's the right thing. Okay, that's what an apologist is. Strictly speaking, you know, an apologist uh, is, is someone who is defending the church from outside influences. Apologetics is defending the church from outside skeptics. Agnostics, atheists, skeptics that, that try to argue that Christianity is, is completely wrong. Defending the church from within against like heresy, uh, you know, uh, against people who are kind of trying to disrupt things, uh, you know, from within the church is, is technically called polemics. Polemics is the the argument, and you see Paul do this all the time. That's why you may hear people say sometime that the argument he's making, that's that's a polemic. What they mean by that is he's making an argument against like a heresy inside the church, and he's trying to correct that and protect the church against that. So I just want to throw those out there because there is the chance we may mention those things. So apologetics and polemics, they're actually important parts of theology because it's kind of like what we do with theology. You know, and what we do with it when we talk to others, um, you know, about Christ. Uh, you know, so we may, we may use those terms. Now, some of the preconditions. One, it all starts with God. I want you to think about something that you may never have thought about before. If God is eternal, uh, if, if, if God has no beginning and no end, If he is infinite, he cannot be confined within anything. If God is omniscient, has all knowledge. If God is all powerful, can do all things that do not basically contradict his own character. You know, if if, if God is omnipresent, you know, isn't confined to being one place at a time, where, like we are. Think of it this way. God, it's like if God is looking, God is standing above a map looking at the map, and we are pieces on the map. God's all present. We are present in one spot. That may help you grasp omnipresence a little. If God is all those things, how could we ever know him? How could we ever talk about him? In the world of theology, that is one of the, the, the most debated parts of theology. In the world of, of apologetics, it is one of the most argued parts of apologetics. Because some outside philosophers, atheists or agnostics, have made the argument, you can't speak about God. Anything you say about him will be sheer nonsense. Because if he is who he says you say he is, how could you ever know him? How could you ever speak anything that makes any sense about him? He's transcendent. You're not. And it's a legitimate discussion. Well, you know the reason we can is because God wanted to communicate. And thank God for that. The only way we can know God is not because we can figure him out somehow because we're so smart. The only way we can know God, understand anything about God, have a reasoned discourse about God is because God has made himself known. God wanted to be known. So he made it he made the conditions exist so he could be known. It all starts there. If that does not exist, we cannot do theology. Again, let me Read something from Dr. Geisler here. The existence of a theistic God is the foundation of Christian theology. If the God of traditional Christian theism does not exist, then logically evangelical theology crumbles. Attempting to construct a systematic evangelical theology without the superstructure of traditional theism is like trying to put together a house without a frame. Theism is the metaphysical condition for, the, for evangelical theology. It is fundamental to all else, being the framework within which every el, uh, everything else has meaning. It makes no sense to speak about the Bible being the word of God unless there is a God. It, likewise, it is meaningless to talk about Christ as the son of God unless there is a God who can have a son. And miracles as special acts of God are not possible unless there is a God who can perform these special acts. In fact, everything in evangelical theology is based on this metaphysical foundation of theism. It all starts there. It's interesting because the Bible just assumes the existence of God. It doesn't give arguments for the existence of God. We will probably talk about some of those things when we get into the doctrine of God. What are some of the reasons we believe that there is a God? We'll touch on some of that, but again, that is not necessarily... The point of this class is more to talk about what the Bible says about God. But we will touch on some of it, because as he said here, it is fundamental. If God doesn't exist, then none of this exists. You can't have this conversation. We'll talk more about language here in a a minute. Now, let me just talk about metaphysics. Metaphysics is the study of being or reality. It means essentially beyond physical. That's, That's simply what metaphysics means. Beyond physical. Beyond the physical world. Physics is the study of the physical world. Metaphysics is what is beyond that. That's basically the difference. And it's the study of what it means to be. What's it, what's it mean to be a, a, a human being? What's it mean to be a, what is personhood? And what's it mean that there is a God, something out there beyond this? That's, that's what we call metaphysics. So don't let that big phrase, you know, that you saw him throw in there, don't, don't let that bother you. That's simply a study of what is beyond the physical universe what 's it mean uh, to be uh, or what is what is reality now some other important things um, well let me let me just um, read some things he touched on there so that we understand this going in there are competing world views on kind of the existence of things let, let me let me read this this is a a longer stretch, but I think it's important that we all understand this because you touch on these elements in theology at times, and, 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 and we can make big errors if we do not understand these things correctly. There are seven major worldviews, and each one is different from the other, with one exception, pantheism and polytheism. No one can consistently believe in more than one worldview because the central premises of each are opposed by those of the others. Logically, only one worldview can be true. The others must be false. The seven major worldviews are as follows. Theism, atheism, pantheism, panentheism, deism, finite godism, and polytheism. Now don't worry, I'll give you a brief... Explanation here for these things. Theism is the worldview that says the physical universe is not all there is. There is an infinite personal God beyond the universe who created it, sustains it, and can act within it in a supernatural way. He is both out there and in here, transcendent and imminent. This is the view represented by traditional Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. We as Christians are theists. We believe that there's a God who's out there beyond the universe, but he is also here in the universe. He's acted here in the universe. He created the universe. He still acts at times in the universe. He is out there and in here. Okay, you guys get the concept? That's what we call theism, all right? Atheism is the idea that no God exists beyond or in the universe, that there is no God. That is atheism. Okay? There there is no God. That's what atheists believe. Some famous atheists were Karl Marx, Friedrich Nietzsche, John Paul Sartre. They they were some of the more famous, you know, atheists. These two are the ones I really want you to pay most attention to because this is where mistakes sometimes are made by Christians. Pantheism. Pan essentially means all. So in other words, all theism is that God is all there is. Pantheism essentially says that the only thing that exists in the universe, and they, by the way, would probably not even use the term God. They would think that's too confining. There is only one thing that exists, and that is the, the ultimate reality. Hindus are the ones most often associated with pantheism. Hindus believe that Brahma is all that there is. You and I don't really exist. We are only dreams or thoughts of Brahma. That chair doesn't exist. This podium doesn't exist. It is just, you know, parts of Brahma's mind. That's what pantheism is. That there is only one being that, that exists at all. All that there is, is that being. That's why it's called pantheism, all theism. Something that's close to that is panentheism. Panentheism, and let me read his definition here. Panentheism says God is in the universe as a mind is in a body. The universe is God's body. But there is another pole to God other than the actual physical universe. For this reason, panentheism is also called bipolar theism. This other pole is God's eternal and infinite potential beyond the actual physical universe. And since panentheism holds that God uh, is, is in constant process of changing, it's also called process theology. And that's probably where you would, would run into it more often than anything if you're reading theology. Alfred North Whitehead was the, the most famous advocate of process theology. Okay? And it is biblically incorrect. They look at, they, they, where, where the, the pantheists would say, I don't exist, you don't exist, this chair doesn't exist, we are all just part of the mind uh, of, of the one being. We're, we're just him. He's just having a dream. Literally, that's what Hindus will sometimes say, Hindu philosophers. We're just dreams that Brahma's having. We don't actually exist. Panentheists would say, "Yes, we exist, but but we are, uh, you know, we're the body of the one thing that exists. He exists as the mind; we are just his body. In other words, it's almost like a glove. Putting your hand in a glove, we're the glove; he's the hand. That kind of thing. You guys get the picture. That's what panentheism essentially says. All right, and it's incorrect. It's non-biblical." You know, we, we are not becoming gods. We are not, you know, we, you know, God's mind is not in us. Now, when we say the Holy Spirit indwells us, we don't say we were born with the Holy Spirit indwelling us. When we say the Holy Spirit indwells us, it's literally, you know, an invasion of us. He has come in us. It is a possession, a good possession. We ask, when we say things like, we've asked Christ into our heart, That's what it means. We've invited him in. we said, I believe you. I want you to be in my life. The Holy Spirit comes in. But you weren't born with him inside of you. That's what the panentheist believes, that God is inside everything. This podium, you, me, the the ceilings, whatever. We're just God's body, essentially. Now, real quickly, deism is the understanding that there's a God beyond the universe, but he's not in the universe. God doesn't involve himself with the universe anymore. Deists agree with theism in saying that, yes, God created, most deists believe God created the whole whole universe. But they believe he wound it up like a clock and then just stepped back and said, I don't want anything to do with it anymore. Let it run out the way it wants. The most famous example of that was, was, was Thomas Jefferson. Thomas Jefferson, Thomas Paine. Uh, You know, some of the early church, you know, early uh, American fathers uh, were were deists. Francois Francois Voltaire was one of the more famous philosophical deists. They did believe in God. They just don't believe God's active in his universe anymore. He just stepped outside and said, hey, you guys do your thing. The final two is finite godism. That means that God essentially is finite. They believe that God exists beyond and in the universe, but he can't handle every problem. He's not omniscient. He's not omnipotent. He's not, you know, they, they believe that all the things that we believe about God, uh, you know, having all knowledge, having all power, those kind of things, he doesn't have all that. He's, he's limited in some way. You know, so that's what's called finite godism. And again, it's, it's not biblical. And then finally, polytheism believes that there's many gods uh, both beyond the world and in the world. And that's why sometimes, here's where it gets really confusing at times. Hindus are both polytheistic and they are pantheistic. They believe the only thing that exists is Brahma, but they believe essentially Brahma is having dreams. He's thinking, he's asleep somewhere and having a dream, which... Don't even try to apply logic to this. Uh, you know uh, um, But you know, they, they believe that, that essentially we're the, we're the dreams of, of Brahma. Well, so are the, all the gods. So that's why Hindus have so many gods, Shiva and Vishnu and Ganesh and all of them. But they believe that all of them are just emanations of Brahma. They're just a manifestation of him somehow. That's why they are so hard for missionaries to lead to Christ. Because if you start talking to them about Jesus, they go, oh boy, that Jesus, he sounds great. Yep, he's one of the gods. But he's just really a manifestation of Brahma. It's very hard to kind of break that mindset and get them to understand, no, there is only one God. He is beyond the universe, but he's also here in the universe. But he is not all there is. We are real. He created real human beings. Real rocks, real trees that are, you know, exist independent of him because he made them. These things are, are, I I realize this is is a lot of heavy slog in here this morning. I apologize. You have to understand these things because we make some of our greatest theological mistakes when it comes to these issues. You know, you'll hear Christians sometimes, or you'll read it in a book, and, and they'll start talking about God in a way that all of a sudden starts touching on pantheism or, or polytheism or something like that, and you're like, ooh. Now, you, you know, you have to have some grace. You understand most of the time they didn't mean that, you know, and so you go on, you read a little bit more, and, and you know, most of the time it was just a slip of the tongue or a way that they, they were misarticulated. But you may read a little bit more and they keep doing it and you realize that, oh, this is a problem. You know, they're false teachers. So that's why you have to understand these things, you know, to to, to move on. I just want to quickly mention a couple things. We're not going to, like, get into the deep meaning of them, but some other things that are preconditions for doing theology. Miracles. God is a miraculous, supernatural God. We spent the last class that we did talking about that. You know, miracles are essential to, to, to doing theology. Um, revelation, that God has revealed himself. He's revealed himself, you know, through the Bible and through Jesus Christ in what we call special revelation. He's also revealed himself in what we call general or natural revelation in the world around us. Okay? So that's revelation. Logic and Reason are necessary for doing theology. You have to understand how to think and how to to, to reason properly in order to do theology. If you don't, you can't do theology. Language. Let me just throw in these last two. Language is essential. We we could not talk about God if God had not given us the gift of language. Do you ever think how great the gift of language is? You guys have heard me say many times how much I love poetry. Or I love like a perfectly written song. You know why I love that so much? Because it's, God has given us the ability to think things and feel things. And then some people have that like, ability to then take the things they think and feel and put it into words in such a way that it really makes you understand what they are thinking and feeling. I mean, to me, there is not many things in the world that are more wonderful than that. And you know the only reason that exists? Because God made it exist. And you can't do any of this without that. And the final thing is interpretation. You have to know how to interpret God's word. And we'll touch on all these things as we go further on in this study. But I just wanted to lay down the the groundwork for what this study is going to be and the things we're going to touch on. Okay, Everybody with me? I hope I didn't like, you know, you're not sitting back there like, oh, my gosh. Trust me, not every week is going to be filled with like all kinds of, uh, of philosophy. Uh, But we did need to talk about some of these things to start. Next week, doctrine of the Bible. We're going to begin with the Bible because the way we find out who God is is through the Bible. So we're going to begin with understanding what the doctrine of the Bible is. All right, so that will be next week. You guys are dismissed. We're past time.